Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and let's go to Nehemiah chapter number nine. You may be seated. The book of Nehemiah in chapter number nine this evening. And we're continuing to walk through our study of the book of Nehemiah here in the middle of the week. Nehemiah chapter number nine. Nehemiah chapter nine. I'll tell you how you'll find it if you'll go to the book of Psalms, the middle of the Bible, and then walk forward toward the front. That's how you'll find it. It's probably the easier way to find it. Nehemiah in chapter nine tonight. Nehemiah chapter nine. And we're going to read the first three verses here in just a moment. Nehemiah chapter nine. And we're going to read the first three verses. How many of you have heard this? That we ought to be walking with God. That our, our relationship with God is like a walk. How many of you have heard that before? Let me see. One, one, of, the, uh, one of the most um, commonly used expressions in the New Testament about our Christian faith is that expression that we are walking with God. It's used in Galatians chapter 5. It's used in Colossians chapter 2. It's used in Micah chapter 6. Again and again and again, the Bible is telling us that what we need in our life is a walk with God. Walking is not only necessary in your physical life, Walking is certainly necessary in your spiritual life. I heard this week that if you walk three times a day at a brisk pace, that you will be a healthier person. How many of you recognize you could walk a little more often in the day, right? I find myself sitting a lot. Do you want to be healthy? Walk three times a day and you'll be, you'll be, a, you'll be a healthier person. And I'm not, I'm not making any argument for the wristband and the headband and making a walk around your office. I'm not, I'm not arguing for that, but maybe that's what you need to do. But getting out and going for a walk is, health, is healthy for you. But it's not just healthy for your physical life. A walking with God is healthy for your spiritual life. Nehemiah chapter 9 is an illustration of the, of the, the children of Israel walking with God. They're on a walk. Now, now here's why you know this. Look, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Are you there? Say, I'm there. Okay, look at, look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, in the 24th day of this month. You see that? In the 24th day of this month. And normally we just read right over that as un, unimportant information. Ne- Nehemiah just filling up you know, his letter with, with unimportant details. But how many, of you, how many of you know this and believe this, that the words of the Bible are the words of God, right? And God doesn't waste any words. God, God doesn't write his word to us the way that you and I wrote that English assignment. And it had to have a thousand words. And you only had 725 and so you started looking for word fillers. 
You started basically saying the same thing over and over in your paper just to get you to the 1,000 word count, right? So you could submit it. God doesn't write his word in that way. isn't filler for us. He writes and he writes for a reason. He writes for a purpose. You remember in Nehemiah chapter 9 that it was the first day of the month. It was the first day of the month. They opened the word of God. They read the law of God. And the second day of that month, they responded to the word of God by mourning, by weeping. And, and Ezra the, and, the, and the priest and Nehemiah, they stood up and they told the people, no, no, this isn't a time for weeping. This isn't a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. And they continued, the Bible says, to read to them and expound to them all of the words of God. And many of them, this was the first time they had heard it. You'll remember, the book of Nehemiah is the book about people returning to the land from captivity. For 70 years, they were in captivity, and they've come back now to the land. And many of them, this is the first time they're hearing the Bible at all. And so they're hearing the word of God, they're responding to it, they're obeying it, and now, they do this for the first two days of the month, and now, the 24th day of the month. What are they still doing to the word of God? This isn't, a, this isn't a, just a, a, a 45 minute sermon on a Sunday and then doing whatever they want for the rest of the time. No, they're hearing the word, they're responding to the word, which creates what? More hearing to the word, more responding to the word, which creates what? More hearing of the word, more responding to the word. And they're walking with God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they are feasting. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, they're fasting. You're going to see that in a moment. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they are celebrating. In Nehemiah chapter 9, they are confessing. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they're heard worshiping God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, they're seen walking with God. And you'll see in these first three verses... Three traits of walking with God. So what does it mean that we should be walking with God? What does it mean that they were walking with God? How do we walk with God? How do we walk with God? What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it says that? Three things. Look at verse 1. Now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths, and with earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Three things about what it means to walk with God. Ready? Three things of what it means to walk with God. Right here from this text. Notice the first one. To walk with God, you must be in the congregation of the saints. Notice the phrase, verse 1, and Israel were, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, sackcloth, and earth upon them. In, in other words, they were meeting together with God's people. So their walk with God included 
being with the people of God. Their walk with God included being with the people of God. And how are you and I, how are we to be with the people of God? In what way do we assemble together with the people of God? Of course, the most demonstrable way that we assemble with the people of God is at church. That our journey of faith, our journey with God and toward God is not meant to be a journey that you and I take alone. It's meant to be a journey that we take with one another, with the people of God. You are never more in danger of spiritual failure than when you are in isolation. You are never more in danger of being given over to a spirit of fear or depression or anxiety than when you are in isolation, when you have removed yourself from the people of God. You need, you need God's people as you journey this life, not only with God, but as you journey this life toward God. And I will tell you very plainly why. Because what is the most tangible, the most demonstrable way that God makes himself known in the world? What's the most visible way that you would see God in action in the world today? It is through his people. The Bible is telling that you and I, as the people of God, that we are the body. Remember this illustration? We are the body of Christ. That the people of God are the hands and they're the feet of God. It's the heartbeat of God. That the people of God serve in this way. Which is why you and I need to be with them. The way in which you walk with God is you walk with God in the congregation of the saints. A couple of reasons why you, why you need to walk in this way. First, it's safer. If you've, ever, if you've ever walked alone at night, if you've ever been on a back or dark country road all by yourself, it's a little bit scary, right? You ever turned down an alley all by yourself at night? It's a little intimidating. It's better if someone is there with you. Makes you feel a little more comfortable. Makes you feel a little safer. So as we journey through this life, God has given us his spirit, which resides in us, if you're a believer. God has given us his word, which goes before us, and lights our path. It shows us the direction that we are go, to go. But God has given us the church, his body, which accompany, accompanies us on the journey that we take in this life. It's safer. Second, it's supportive. That, that this life that we are living... It's not to be understood as simply a 50-yard a dash. No, the life that we are living is understood as a marathon. It's a race that we're running. The finish line is way out there. And we need some encouragement along the way. That if we're going to keep up our energy all the way to the end, it helps to have someone who's running along with us in this race. It's supportive. It's smarter. It's smarter. You learn much more by walking with someone rather than walking alone. 
If, if, you're, if you're walking alone, you might be more prone to walk in the wrong direction without even realizing it. With a friend who walks beside you. You're, you're more likely to recognize if you veered off path. No, notice, how, notice how they're meeting in the congregation. Notice they're meeting with regularity. They're meeting with regularity. The 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled. What were they doing on the first day? They were assembling. What were they doing on the second day? They were assembling. What were they doing? Fast forward. On the 24th day, they were assembling. So the, the weeks between chapter 8 and chapter 9, we can infer then that they are doing the same thing that they were doing in those two chapters, and that is that they were assembling together. They met with regularity. Adrian Rogers, a, a famous preacher from a few decades ago, said this, if a man's faith won't take him to church, then it most likely won't take him to heaven. If a man's faith won't take him to church, then it most likely won't take him to heaven. Did, did you know that Jesus was committed to corporately gathering together with God's people? In Luke chapter 4, we're told that Jesus went to the temple to worship as his custom was. His custom, his habit, his tradition, the regular part of his weekend was doing what? Was going to the temple and worshiping with God's people. Luke chapter 4, we're told that's what Jesus is doing. Where do you think Jesus, earthly speaking, humanly speaking, where do you think Jesus learned that from? Could it be that Jesus learned that, humanly speaking, from Luke chapter 2, where his mom and dad, when he was a little boy, were taking him to church? They were, they were making this a holy habit of his life? And growing up in, in my home, there were two questions that I never had to ask my dad. I never had to ask my dad if he loved me, and I never had to ask my dad if we were going to go to church. You know why? Because we were going to go to church. There were some times I questioned if he loved me or not, but I never had to actually verbalize it to him because deep down I knew. I knew dad loved me. And I knew dad was going to take me to church. What about you for your family? What about for your home? What are the priorities in your weekend? Is your faith in Christ strong enough that it takes you to where his body meets? They met with regularity, but that's not it. They met with humility. Look at this. With fasting and with sackcloths and with dirt upon them. So they not only met with regularity, but they also met with humility. Fasting, sackcloth, and dirt on them, or ashes on them. These are signs of brokenness. These are signs of repentance. These are signs of humility. Now remember this. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's no Sambalat, there's no Tobiah. There's no enemies. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's no nations or armies forming around them. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's no more constructing the wall or building the towers. They're already built. They're already constructed. It's, it's the victory's already been won. Hear me on this. You never need humility more than when things are going great. You never need humility more than when things are going good. 
You see, when things are going bad, when things are falling apart, it's easy to be humble then. It's easy to ask for help then. It's, it's natural to, 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 I don't know what I'm doing. I need some instruction. When things are falling apart, it's easy to humble yourself then. When things are going good, you got the job, you got the apartment, you got the promotion, you got the money, you got the goods. When things are going good, oh, how easy it is for us to fill our hearts with pride and think that it was us that did it, that it was our awesomeness or our coolness or our hipness or our greatness that got us here. It was my wisdom or my strength or my ability that got me here and we have forgotten that it was God all along the way. Here, things are going good for them. They have no enemy they're fighting. They have no armies outside of them. They have no division inside. They're worshiping. They're assembling with God's people for more than a month. They're hearing the word of God, many of them, for the very first time. They're going back to their own homes, homes that are theirs. They aren't living as captives in another land. They're speaking their own language, not a foreign language. Things are going good and how easy would it be for them to get a little arrogant, a little haughty, a little prideful? It wasn't, wasn't all God, it was some me. It wasn't all grace, it was some of my own, some of my own ingenuity. It wasn't all the Lord, it was... Listen, go, go, go backwards in your Bible, go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the children of Israel would read this every morning and every night. Deuteronomy chapter 6, every morning and every evening, they'd read this passage of Scripture together as a family. We won't read it all. You should read it tonight. But skip down to, uh, skip down to verse 10. Deuteronomy 6.10, and it shall be that when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. You see this? What's God telling the children of Israel in Deuteronomy? What's he reminding them of? He's reminding them that when he pours his blessing out on them because of their obedience to him, that they should not love the gift more than the giver. They shouldn't see themselves all of a sudden as the strong one and think that they don't need him. They should remain humble and obedient to him. Man, and they met in the congregation, how? They met in the congregation with regularity. They met in the congregation with humility. You never need humility more than when things are going good. Let us heed that word, church. 
It's not just walking with God in the congregation of the saints, though. There's a second thought here, and that's verse 2. It's walking with God through confession of sins. So look at verse 2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So how do we walk with God? We walk with God one way in the congregation that God has given us and in assembling ourselves together with regularity and with humility. Second, we walk with God in confession of sin. We talked about this this weekend. I'll remind you of what we said. Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. That is what confession is. The biblical understanding of what confessing our sin means. You're made aware of your sin. You're convicted for it. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel remorse. That biblical understanding of those feelings, that's called conviction. And then you say, I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to have a different attitude. I'm going to choose a different path. I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to look at a different thing. I'm, going, I'm not going to do the, You're repenting, literally turning from. So the biblical word repentance literally means you not only feel the sting of your sin, the guilt of your sin, the shame. You not only feel it, but you realize it's wrong. You realize the direction it's taking you, and you're turning from it. You're, I'm getting away from it. I'm repenting of it. I was going that way, but now I'm going to go this way. I was doing those things, but now I'm going to do these things. I was living th like this, but now I'm going to live like that. So you're repenting. Well, what is confession? Confession, then, is agreeing with God about your sin. It's acknowledging, yes, I feel the sting of sin, and yes, I want to turn from my sin, and I am turning from my sin, but it's agreeing with God that this is, in fact, sin, and then confessing it to the Lord. As salvation involves confessing Jesus, agreeing with who Jesus is, I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in mine heart that God, that's what Paul said, that God had raised him from the dead. So what is the confessing then? You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying you confess, you agree. I know who Jesus is, the Son of God. I understand what Jesus has done, lived the perfect sinless life, which I couldn't do. I, I agree. Jesus died on the cross. He became a propitiation for me. He atoned for my sin on the cross. And then he rose from the grave, literally, physically. Three days later, he walked out. I confess Jesus is Lord. What are you doing when you confess Jesus is Lord? You're agreeing with who the scriptures say Jesus is. And confession of sin is no different. Oftentimes here, this is where people would say, well, well if, if I've believed on Jesus and if he's forgiven me of my sin, well, then why do I need to confess my sin? Well, John tells us this. John deals with this very idea. The book of 1 John. It's a short book. It's five chapters. You should read it tonight if you would like. But it's a very simple book. And John is dealing with this to believers. And what he's saying to believers is, well, surely you are aware that you have sin. 
So yeah, Jesus has forgiven us of our sin. Our position is sealed. It's settled forever. No man can pluck you out of my hand, of my Father's hand. That's what Jesus says. No one's coming out. So the salvation that is ours in Jesus is ours, and it's ours for good. But what, but what about right now in this moment? What about my sin? So while my position is secure, practically I still struggle with my sin. I still do Romans 7, uh, the things that I would not, those I do. The things that I should, those I do not. The stuff I wish I didn't do, I find myself doing. The stuff I know I shouldn't do, I always do. What about this war inside of my members? Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the battle. Surely you realize you have sin. Surely you realize even this week you did not do all that you should. You did not say all you should. You did, not do, you did not go all the places that you should have gone. You did not refrain from going from places that you shouldn't have gone. So surely you have sin. In fact, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We've made God out to be a liar. So what do we do with our sin practically? Well, the Bible tells us two things you should do with your sin practically. Two things in the New Testament that you should do practically with your sin. If you're a believer, so I'm saved. I know Jesus is the Lord. I've put my faith in him. I know heaven's my home. I'm sealed. But what do I do right now? Two things. First, Colossians chapter 3 says that you should mortify the deeds of the flesh. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. In other words, you should kill sin in your life. You should, should get out your axe and you should start chopping off sin as it leads you away from God. Mortify the deeds of your flesh, which is on the earth. Then he goes on this long list, this immorality and fornication and, and uncleanness. And it goes down this long list of, of, of deeds, actions that we should be putting off of us so that we can pursue Christ. So that we can win Christ. So that we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. All of these are our understanding of what it means to grow in our Christian life. So two things you should do with sin. You should first kill your sin. You should go strong and hard after sin. You should reject it. You should cut off your right hand. Because if you sin with your right hand, Jesus says, then it will take you to hell. In fact, if there is an unwillingness in your life, if you go, well, I know that's a sin. I understand it's a sin. I realize how damaging and destructive a sin it is, but I don't care. I enjoy it more than I enjoy Jesus. Then you might want to evaluate whether or not you know who Jesus is. Pluck out your right eye. He is saying, this is sin. Do you see how sinful sin is? Get away from it. Run from it. Flee it. Mortify it. Put it to death. Because it's sin. We've lost in our cultural moment the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We think of sin as a light thing, a trivial thing. No, nobody's perfect Everybody sins. It's, it's okay. 
The authors of the New Testament knew nothing of that kind of living. They saw sin as an exceeding sinful, a hideous thing in the sight of God, something that broke fellowship and relationship with God. And so they're telling the church, kill it. So what do you do with your sin? Mortify the deeds of the flesh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Second, confess your sin. 1 John chapter 1. Confess it. And if we will confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you should be killing your sin and when you see the sin that you have committed, the deed that you have done, you should be confessing it. You should be acknowledging it. In fact, confession of sin is the greatest way in which you kill it. It's the final blow. It's the last straw. Confess it. Lord, I sinned. I sinned against you. And I know it was a sin. And I did this evil thing in your sight. Forgive me. I agree with you. That this is wrong. And lead me from it. And keep me from evil. And give me the courage and the resolve to do what's necessary to run from Sin. Confess it. So in confession of sin for the believer, we do not confess our sin for the basis of forgiveness. We confess our sin to show that we are truly in Christ. And in Christ... All of our sins are covered by his blood. Sometimes people have a hard time with this when it relates to eternal salvation because they think, well, okay, if I believed on Jesus at this point, A, and then I sinned at point B, some point later in the road, well, then the blood of Jesus won't forgive me for this because I already used it for this. But remind yourself of this. All of your sin is future tense with Christ. Christ died here for the ungodly, for the sinner. And if Christ died, and if my life is hid with Christ and God, Colossians chapter 2, if my life is hid with Christ and God, then because he lives, I live. Because he is righteous, I'm righteous. My position with God is secure. And so at this moment, fast forward 2000, 2005 hundred years and you land here and you've believed on Jesus and you're standing in Long Beach, California, 2022, and you go, ah, oh, I did believe on Jesus when I was 15 or 16 or 18 or 30, but I still struggle practically with sin. You need to recognize that this is part of our Christian growth. It's part of our Christian life. And so you need to put an end to sin and you need to mortify the deeds of the flesh and you need to walk in the identity that you have in Christ and you confess 
this as sin to Christ and you need to allow his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his love to reign over you and make you clean with him and do what the psalmist says in Psalm 51, restore to me, give it back, restore to me the joy of my salvation because sin stole it from me. See? Sin robs you of all that Christ has for you, that he's purchased, that he's bought, that he's secured, that he holds. Sin has robbed you from it. And there is no sin with greater power than the love of Jesus Christ. Grace, God's grace in Christ is greater than any sin you've ever had. Sin, according to the Bible, will destroy you. Sin, if it's unconfessed and pursued, will ruin you. Sin, if you never turn from it and die in it, will cast you into hell for all of eternity. But unconfessed sin will change you. It will make you someone else. It will cause you to live out of step with who you are in Christ. And that's why you're so frustrated. That's why you feel the turmoil you feel. Because you're a child of his. You belong to him. And whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He says, no, 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 no. This is going to destroy you. This is going to ruin you. It's no loving parent who lets their kid play in the middle of the 710. It's no loving dad who says, yeah, sure, go run in the middle of the street. That sounds like a great idea. No, no, no. Loving, heavenly father to whom we are his children. He brings seasons into our life where he chastens us. He instructs us to cause us to see the sinfulness of our sin. To lead us to mortify that sin and to confess it, to agree. This is sin and I'm turning from it. You and I will never be sinless until the day where we step from this earth into eternity. Salvation understood in the Bible is understood like this. There's justification, which is the moment that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard the story of Jesus and you went, wow, he did that for me? He loved me like that? He died for me? I want him to be mine and I want to be his. And I confess he's Lord. That, uh, that's understood in, as justification. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's just as if you never sinned. Justification. It's a one-time event. When were you born? When's your birthday? Mine's August 30th, 1981. It's coming up very soon. Write it down because I want a birthday gift from you. You have a little over a month. 
And don't start counting up those dates and going, wow, you're old. I don't want to hear that either. When were you born? What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You must be born again. So sometimes I'll ask people, I asked somebody this on the airplane the other day. I said, have you ever believed in Jesus? They say, well, you know, I kind of I think of my life as like always believing in Jesus. I go, so you've never been born again? They said, what? No, 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 you must be born again. When were you born? They told me a date which was much younger in years than mine. I said, well, so you have a birthday. You know when you were born. You weren't, like, just kind of always born. Well, you must be born again. Born again, that date is what is understood in the Bible as justification. And for that to happen, the Holy Spirit had to be present. Confession of who Jesus is had to, be ha- had to happen. An understanding of the consequence of sin had to happen. And a turning away from your sin and your self-righteousness to believe in the Lord had to happen. It happened, and it happened in a moment. And in that instance, the Bible says the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. So this is justification. But this is not the only part of salvation. Now there is this sanctification. The sanctification is what we're talking about tonight. How do I now walk in this life with Christ? Well, you add, the Apostle Peter says, you add to your faith, you believed on Jesus, you add to your faith knowledge, temperance, patience, the word of God, which leads you in all things necessary for life and godliness. So now that you believed in Jesus, now what happens? You start adding all these things to your life. And as you're obedient to the Lord, the Holy Spirit flourishes in your life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit blossoms because you're obedient to the word, you're obedient to his spirit, and now there's joy and there's love and there's patience and there's peace, and now there's contentment where there used to be greediness, and now there's love where there used to be hate, and now there's peace where there used to be grumpiness, and now there's joy where there used to be crankiness. And now all of this is flourishing in your life. And then what happens? And then in this sanctification process, we go, eh, I mean, this is really good, God. Things are going good. I don't need you anymore. Thanks. And I go running back to my sin. Like the Old Testament writer says, like a dog that returns to its vomit. I run back to my sin because I'm sinful and I'm selfish and I'm at war in this life. And then I feel the sting of sin. I have the consequence of sin, the discipline from a loving Heavenly Father, and I come back to Jesus, and I confess it as sin. And what happens? It starts to flourish again. I start to walk in newness of life again. I get restored joy. I get restored love. I get restored peace. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Christ. Because He will not let me go. That's why. You see, it's not you and me. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's all Jesus. Because he sealed me with his spirit. And he will not deny himself. He will not turn himself away. And that process is called sanctification. And every person in this room is at a different point of their sanctification than anybody else. It doesn't make you worse of a Christian. It doesn't make you better of a Christian. It just makes you a Christian. And so stop comparing yourself to everybody else and put your eyes on Jesus and be obedient to his word and listen to his spirit and find some good Christian companionship along the way and say, hey, I need you to help me on this walk that I'm in because I can't make this by myself until the day 
when the Lord has appointed for me and for you to step out of this sanctification process and into what is understood in the Bible as glorification, the day in which your faith is made sight. When I see Jesus, I don't know what I'll be, but I know this, I'll be like him, Paul says. I don't know what that looks like. I just know I'm going to look like him. And how does he look? He looks holy and he looks righteous and he looks perfect in his resurrection. And that is what waits for me because he lives, I'll live. That is glorification. And at that point of your glorification, guess what? You will not wrestle with sin anymore. Doesn't that make heaven sound so good? Doesn't it make heaven sound so sweet that at that moment when I see Jesus, all the struggle and all the hurt and all the shame and all the guilt and all the pain and all the scars, they all go away because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And we're all in different places of that. But this is where we began. And that is one day where we will end. So run your race with patience. Run your race with patience. This is what the scriptures are calling us to do. In our Christian walk. Now I took way too much time on that. But let me get off this. Here we go. How do I walk with Jesus in the congregation of the saints through confession of sin? I'm challenging you tonight to have the courage to ask the Lord, Lord, where have I sinned? Where, where am I living in sin? Show me. And I will turn and I will confess and I will obey. Last one. In the continuing of the scriptures. Look at verse 3. How did they make their walk? They made it with the congregation of the saints. They made it with confession of sin. And third, they made it by continuing in the scripture. Look what they said. Verse three. And they stood up in their place and they read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one fourth part of the day. Look here. Look here. You got to understand this. What does one fourth part of the day mean? Forty-five minutes on Sunday. One-fourth part of the day. In the Hebrew, what it means is uh, one-fourth part of the day. A quarter of the day. Guess what they did? They read in the book of the law of the Lord their God. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you can say you spent a quarter of your day today reading the Bible? That's kind of convicting. But that wasn't all. And another fourth part. Now let me tell you what that means. So where it says another fourth part in the Hebrew, what that means, it's very complicated language, but in the Hebrew what that means is another fourth part. So if you have two fourths, I know it's summer, I know it's summer. And I know you aren't doing all the math projects for your children just yet with their homework. That time is coming, but let's get a head start. If you have two-fourths, what do you have? So half of the day they spent reading 
and confessing and worshiping. What? They continued in the word of God. Watch this. It's interesting. As they continue reading in the word of God, verse 3, as they continue reading the word of God, guess what it leads to? It leads to more confessing, which leads to what? More worshiping, which leads to what? More reading, which leads to what? More confessing, which leads to what? More worshiping. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that they filled their minds, they filled their time, they they filled their downtime with the word of God. What do you think about when you don't have anything to think about? You think about something. What is it? What do you think about when you don't have anything to think about? When you don't have to get to the office, when you don't have to deal with that client, when you don't have to pay those bills, when you don't have to have that talk with the kids, and you don't have to... What do you think about when you don't have anything to think about? Most of us think about the latest movie, our favorite team, whatever celebrity we're interested in. We spend our time scrolling and trolling. Did you see what so-and-so posted? And did you see where vacation they went on? And did you see? What do you think about when you don't have anything to think about? You know what they did? They spent a fourth of that time just reading the Bible. And then they spent a fourth of that time responding to what they read. For most of us, the only Bible we really get is when we come to church. Not what we get on our own. But if you're going to continue in your walk with the Lord, you must commit yourself to continue in the scriptures. To spend time in the word of God, reading it, memorizing it, loving it. Hiding it in your heart. Because the Bible says that the word hidden in our heart keeps us from sin. Shows us the way to go. Helps us navigate the decisions that we have to make in this life. They read the word of God and they rejoice because they get to read it. They read the word and they rejoice.